With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Get us bellow away? Now, Charlie. Charlie. Get us pedo, not chale. Ya sabes que a mí me vale. Me vale. Get us pedo, not chale. Chale. You know that I'm down for the hype. Welcome to Suplexes and Cervezas with Chavo Guerrero Jr. I'm your host, Chavo Guerrero Jr. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Suplexes and Cervezas today. Uh, I'm Chavo Guerrero Jr. And uh, what a beautiful day in Southern California again. Uh, <laughs> I don't get tired of saying that. You know, there's a reason why we pay big taxes over here in California. It's because it's Southern freaking California. We get a little of everything. We love it here. Anyways, today on the podcast, uh, we have John Bradshaw Layfield, JBL, as you want to call him sometimes, as he's known in uh, in the WWE. Um, great guy, man. Really good friend of the family. Controversial at times, for sure. But uh, he's old school. This guy is as old school as it gets. He's straight up uh, from, uh, you know, from back in the, in the golden era of wrestling, if you want to call it. A lot of history with the Guerrero family. This guy's really been everywhere, you know. He started out in the NFL, uh, then um, transitioned into pro wrestling, and uh, is one smart cookie when it comes to finances. You know, I asked him on the pod, why, uh, you know, how did you learn to do all this stuff with your finances? And he said, man, uh, I got tired of not having any money. (laughs) So he learned how to uh, manage his money and uh, make the most of it. this guy, you know, like I said, has been everywhere. He started off in uh, Dallas area, I believe, and uh, wrestled in Japan. He's gone to Europe. He kind of went everywhere. Ended up in the WWE, and kind of the rest is history, you know. On the pod today, we talk about his relationship with his his old pal, uh, one of the toughest guys in the business, and one of the nicest guy also, Big Ron Simmons. Uh, damn, as you remember him by his his motto. I've been up and down the road a few times with JBL, and uh, what a great guy! You know, this guy is uh, he 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 can put away a couple uh, Coors Lights, <laughs> and he can drive that that golf ball over three hundred yards. So uh, this dude is uh, he he's one of the, he's one of the old school guys. Like I said, one of our pals, one of uh, part of the Guerrero family, we call it. And uh, we talk about so many different things in this podcast today. So I hope you enjoy the listen. Let me know your thoughts when you get done with the podcast and uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And right now on the podcast, JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield. Well, my dad was to tell me the stories about Jack and my dad, when he was in college, wrestling in college at UTEP, he used to study Jack Briscoe because Jack Briscoe, if anybody's listening, they, they, he, in college, he was never, ever taken down in a college wrestling match. 
never taken down. That's how good this guy was. So everybody studied him. So when my dad finally got to meet him, he was like, like, oh my God, this guy's like a legend. And then he's a legend out of the ring too, you know, <laughs> the Briscoes. Yeah, so. that's true. In 1965, when he won the NCAA uh, championship, uh, Jerry was on the 1968 team that won the national championship. Jack never got taken down, not one time the entire year. It's one of the greatest amateur records of all time. He had been the gold medalist. I mean, he had, he had done whatever he wanted. They just didn't have any money, and there wasn't any medals. Right. There wasn't any money in being a gold medalist, and that's why Jack was not a gold medalist. He could have been world champion. He could have done whatever he wanted. That's exactly what my dad told me. He's, I was like, well, did he go to the Olympics? And he's like, well, no, why not? He's like, well, you had to pay bills. Yeah, you know, Jerry dropped out of school around the 68 season and went straight into pro wrestling because same, same reason, he didn't have any money. You know, they grew up on, I think, a Chickasaw, Choctaw. Is it Choctaw or Chickasaw? Maybe a combination of the two, uh, reservation. And uh, didn't have any money. And so, to them, going to college wasn't going to get them much of any place anyway. They knew they could make money in wrestling. Right, right. And they were, those guys were smart. You know, I remember their, their Briscoe brothers – body shop you know and they were I, I love that shirt I had one of those shirts you know so you know I inducted them in the hall of fame I was there and I remember and I remember <laughs> your speech was so not PC to now this oh today. my god they <laughs> told me right before and both of them had a couple drinks before the hall of fame and they no. told me they said John <laughs> listen whatever you do because I had sent Gerald Briscoe to, uh, reser- uh, subscriptions to like Texas Monthly, Texas Parks and Wildlife, all kinds of Texas magazines. And they'd go to his house every single month. I did it for years. I sent him, I sent him cards on Columbus Day. I sent him cards oh. on Thanksgiving. Because for those that don't know, Jerry's a, 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 a seven-eighths uh, chunk called Native. And so always because of the Texas and the Cowboy and the Native, I would send him stuff on Columbus Day on Thanksgiving. So I, I had the history of ribs with them and them on me. And they told me, said, whatever you do, don't say anything. Don't tell a native joke. Do not do that when you get out there. And I said, guys, listen, this is the Hall of Fame. This is too serious. I would not do something like that at the Hall of Fame. And the first thing I said was, I said, I walk in, there's Jerry and Jack standing by this door. And I said, hey, guys, this isn't a cigar store. You can come in. (laughs) (laughs) And I told one native joke every day. You couldn't get away with that today. You know, Jerry Briscoe. I used to take pictures of wooden Indians all over the world, and he had a wooden Indian as his profile pic. And I would send him a pic, say, hey, Jerry, I'm thinking about you. We're good friends now. I understand that. So Jerry thought it was funny and put it on his Twitter that I had sent him this picture of his wooden Indian. I got called racist this, racist that. <laughs> He's got a picture of wooden Indian on his profile picture. If you go back and listen, anybody listening, you got to go back and see that. What year was that, that Hall of Fame speech? Oh, eight or something. I can't remember. Yeah. I, oh, five. I can't remember. Yeah. I, you got to go back and see it because it's one of one. First of all, John JBL is gold on the microphone. You give him the microphone. That guy would just talk and talk and talk and talk. But and, and just and just make sense and not just not ramble. He, he doesn't pull a Paul Lee. It just keeps talking. It's just bullshit. <laughs> he, he actually says he means them and it's great. It's entertaining. But then this video, I mean, this, this induction to the Hall of Fame, it is the funniest thing. But it, it, like, if you listen to it now, you're going to cringe going, oh, my God. Uh, you, 
you can't. It's all such talking about the reservations and the, oh my gosh, you get thrown off the air now if you said what all I said back then. It was all the you know, it's all comedy. It's all work. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's all yeah, it's working. It was all good. And they were in on it. You know, they thought it was yeah. funny. It wasn't like it was taking shots it, at them. I mean, it was just fun. We all did. We all that was the best speech of the night. We were all laughing, and you had the whole place rolling. It was great. I told him my great uh, grandfather was a famous uh, Navajo chief, Big Chief Slapaho. <laughs> Slapaho, exactly. Too funny, man. The, the, my favorite part about these podcasts is is catching up with my friends because we don't get to see each other anymore, you know, at a funeral or a Hall of Fame or something like that. But we really don't really get to hang out together anymore, and that's what I miss the most about wrestling. Sure, getting in the ring, absolutely. But I miss the time with the boys. I miss the camaraderie with the boys, you know? Yeah, I do too. That, that to me is the, the, the thing that I miss the most. You know, you, you love to be able to be young again and be in the ring and, you know, have hopefully good matches with people. But right. sitting in the back and just bullshitting and having fun, that was the time of my life. I mean, God, we had so much fun. You know, people don't understand, you know, especially back back in the day, as, as they say, we didn't right. have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. So when we get a car in a car, you know, three or four of us to go to the next town, all we had was each other. So we had to be entertaining. We'd have a few beers. We'd tell stories. That's where all those road stories came from. You know, I don't know if we'd have had cell phones and internet, if maybe we'd be like the guys today and be on our phones and checking all our social media and doing different stuff. We didn't have that option. And so we had just had each other and good Lord, did we have some fun times. Just the times in the bars, just having – we couldn't wait to get done, get to the next town so we could – okay, well, we got two hours. Get to the bar. Get to the bar quick, right? What there were some guys one time. We were, in, we were in Ireland, and some guy was trying to start a fight with you, and he had a, he had a, like a golf club or something with him. Remember that? And, and the, so the, guy, the guy's in the, in the bar with the golf club, and – Finally, I, I, I'm sitting there, and Undertaker's sitting maybe a one or two down from me, and I look in the mirror, which you can see the mirror in the bar, and you can see behind you, and Taker goes, grab him! And I realize right away it's you, and I can see you in the mirror, and I reach like this, and I grab you, and you're walking toward the guy, and I said, Chavo, what are you doing? You go, nothing. And I said, Chavo, where's your watch? And you'd put it in your pocket. <laughs> I said, you're just going to do nothing. And you go, I'm just going to go talk to him. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man, I, that was in Dublin. We were in Dublin. That's right. Yeah, and that little bar from right around the corner from the hotel. And I put that watch in my pocket, you know, my my tag. I put my, my $1,000 tag watch in my, in my pocket. Okay, I can't break this. Put it in my pocket and... I, this guy was just talking crap. I was gonna go. I was gonna go talk uh, to him. Yeah, he, he wanted. He wanted to fight. He wanted to fight badly. And you'd had. You'd yeah. finally had enough. And I take him. Grab him. And then the only thing that stopped you from beating up this guy was yeah. so I was able to grab you at the last second. And then I had Fit Finley, and Fit Finley was there and going, "Whew, Chavo, good thing they stopped you. He would have kicked your ass." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the best. Oh, he did. Oh, he just. Oh, it was awesome. He he posted something on his uh, uh, social media today, and it was like uh, he's you know fits all soft and nice now, and he's he's holding <laughs> yeah. his grass. Boy, that's an act. <laughs> oh my god, right? It's a, that's a um um what do you call it? A, a not a double entendre, but a um with a two meaning thing. A uh, like a jumbo shrimp. 
<laughs> right? Right. Fun, right. A nice oxymoron. 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 Yeah. Oxymoron. So he's holding this 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 picture. He's holding like a um a, a big grasshopper, and he says, "Hey, I made I made a new friend." So I I replied, "Just don't snap him and kick him in the back because he won't like you anymore." <laughs> Fit not One time. Fit knocked my tooth out, which uh, this side because it was his right hand. So we, we wrestled one time in Hanover, and they booked, you know, heel versus heel, two stiff guys. You know, they just wanted to see two stiff guys go at it. So Finley caught me with a clothesline right early in the match, and I knew he caught me well, and I thought he, you know, busted my tooth, but I wasn't sure. So he came to me after the match, and he goes, hey, John, thanks for the match. I said, hey, thank you, Dave. It was great. He said, I didn't catch you on anything, did I? I said, no, it's dreamy. Didn't feel anything, which really pissed him off because he knew he had caught me at the clothesline. He wanted me to admit it, and I wouldn't admit it. So he goes, I didn't catch you on anything. And you could tell he's disappointed. I said, hey, you're a dream, and I don't know what people complain about. You, you were light as a feather. And as he walks off, I've got a little sandwich by my locker because we were there every single day and I had a little food there. And I bit into it, my tooth fell out. And I said, damn it, he knocked out my tooth. And he was right around the corner. He came back in. He goes, I knew it. He was all excited about it. <laughs> oh, my God. He's the stories of fit that he was. We, we met a tamed, a, a turned down fit, a tamed fit. But the stories of him when he was in Germany and he would just walk into a bar and just push everybody away to the side and just walk right in. And people would say, like, hey, wrestling, is, that, is it fake? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it is? Yeah, let me see your hand. And he'd break your finger. Just break, break your finger. Thumb. Yeah, he'd break a finger or a thumb. Yeah, that, that is a 100% true story. I saw Fit one time and Brad Armstrong, uh, you know, the, the, you know, yeah, the legendary yeah. Armstrong family, had probably the great one of the, one of the greatest matches I've ever seen in my life uh, in Bremen, Germany. They went, uh, they, we used to go rounds there. And I remember, forget how many rounds they went, maybe 10 or 12 rounds, which was, I think you went four or five, three, three or four minute rounds. I can't remember what it was. But it was a long time, and, man, what a freaking match. I mean, Fit could go. Fit was the best heel I've ever seen, ever, ever seen. You know, he was in – when he was in Europe, and you were in Bremen and Hanover, uh, Vienna and, and Graz, he had to be there every single week. I mean, every single, every single day for several weeks, every single year. He was the main heel there for 15, 20 years. I mean, it's an unbelievable – he had the best, one of the best runs I've ever seen as a heel. He was the best yeah. heel I've ever seen. Yeah, he was He was an incredible wrestler. So good, so good. I remember when he first came into um, WCW. So the first time I met him, I was still living with Eddie, training for wrestling, and I had to go – it was Super Bowl Sunday. The Dallas Cowboys are playing, my team of all teams, and they're playing the Bills, and I had to go into, into Juarez, Mexico to go wrestle, right? So, and it was Dave uh, Finley and Dave Taylor were at Eddie's house and they were getting their visas squared up so that they could wrestle in WCW. So Eddie, you know, hosted them and had some beer for them and stuff. And, you know, I'm getting ready to watch the game while I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there like polishing my boots, getting my boots all shiny. And they're, they're laughing at me. They're like, look at this kid polishing his boots. So I'm looking at him, you know, I'm, I'm I've never, I've, I've just had probably 10 matches, you know, and I, and I look at them, I go, Hey guys, uh, so what's your, you try to make conversation, you know, so what, what's your favorite kind of beer? And fit just goes cold <laughs> and drinks his beer. He, he didn't say just, he just a cold. Ben like, <laughs> is okay. a funny, funny guy. Especially okay. back then, he was sharp, man. He had a sharp tongue. He was funny. Fit was a, fit was a shark, man. 
He was something oh. else. You know, and, and he was a heel 24-7, especially. And you, you had to be in Europe because you lived there. You couldn't let the people see right. you get out of character. You know, and people talk about how The Undertaker was in character for – 20 straight years and then a heel does it and you go people say oh what an asshole okay so one was professional one's an asshole you know exactly. to me that, that that's the guys that made money and what are guys yeah. that were able to make people believe they were that person of course family was that person <laughs> he so, was so a that's, heel. that's who we learn from we you and i learned from that so to just even get into that you how did you who trained so who trained you wrestling Brad Rongens up in Minnesota. Oh, wow. You know, oh, wow. Brad trained, trained uh, you know, Big Van Vader, trained Brock Lesnar. Brad was probably the best trainer uh, there was back then. Uh, I, I just played, uh, you know, a little bit in the NFL, in the World Football League, the World League of American Football. And I met somebody who had wrestled in Japan, and they said the way to do it is to go get trained. And I didn't know anybody. And I said, well, who do you the best trainer? And he said, Brad Rongens. And I, I literally called Brad Cold. And I said, hey, I just got released uh, out of the World League of American Football. I want to be a wrestler. And he, I said, what do I do? He said, well, you come up to Minnesota. You live up here for a few months, and I'll train you. And 2500 bucks, I'll train you in my basement, and we'll send you off. And so that's what I did. I went up there and didn't know Brad, didn't know anybody. Drove up there, got a little place that Brad arranged for me to get. And because of the name of Brad – I got jobs almost right away. I went down to Texas. I got a job right away. I uh, met Kendo Nagasaki, uh, Mr. Sakurada from Japan, got to go over. He just split with Tenru in war and, and calls his own, uh, his own group of wrestlers over there in uh, uh, Japan, mainly Tokyo. And so I got to go to Japan right away. But all of it came about because of Brad. Brad was a great trainer. Great guy, too. You know, Brad was a 1980 Greco-Roman world champion, and he would have right. been the gold medalist, but that's the year that they boycotted the Olympics because of that's right. you know, Russia and, and Jimmy Carter didn't want to you know, have deal right. with Russia. Right, that's right, that's right. And you, so you grew up, obviously, in Texas, Texas boy, Texas pride, but you um, were a heck of a, of a high school basketball, uh, football player. Yeah, right. I was All-State, and uh, – you know, it's on small American teams um, as a high school player. I was actually na later named to the all-century team for the West Texas football, which included, uh, you know, Mojo Magic and uh, Friday Night Lights, that area. Then I went to my local college because that's where I wanted to go, Abilene Christian. I ended up making All-American a couple times there. and Just got put in the Hall of Fame there a couple years ago. I made the all-century team uh, there. Nice. Uh, a few years before that. Then I went and played a little professional football. Didn't play much. You know, I like to think it was because of injuries. I had a lot of injuries. I had uh, four knee surgeries in college. Uh, you know, it may have been a lack of ability. <laughs> I'd like to think it was, no. I'd like to think it was uh, all of the surgeries I had and the, the fact that I just – I wasn't quite the athlete I was when I got out of college because I'd had so many surgeries. Right, right. And then you went – got into football. You trained – I mean, going to wrestling. Let me scratch that. Start again. You get into wrestling, get trained by Brad Rangings, and then where's your first territory? Dallas. So I came back to Texas, and uh, I think it's an interesting story. I wrestled the first night for Killer Tim Brooks, uh, made $10 at the Villa Inn in Garland, Texas. I showed up, and I said, hey, I want to wrestle tonight. And he goes, I can't pay you much money, kid. And I said, look, I just want to wrestle. I've never had a match before. And he said, you never had a match? I said, no, I want to wrestle. And he, he said, well, who trained you? I said, Brad Ryan. Once I told him that, he goes, yeah, we'll put you in the ring. So they put me in the ring. The, that was Wednesday. On Friday, 
I showed up to the Sportatorium and Lou Perez, who was Al Perez's working cousin, I don't think they were really related, no-showed the event. I, I, I have no idea what happened. I say he no-showed. I don't know if it was travel or, you know, it was something. Who knows yeah. what happened? I, he I wasn't never, there and you had your gear. <laughs> I was there and I had my gear. Rod Price was the champion. And they said, we don't have a main event. They said, what do we do? They said, we got this big kid that wrestled at the Villa Inn. He was trained by Brad Rygans, again, Brad's name. And they said, let's stick him in the main event uh, for the, in the Sportatorium with the champion and see what happens. So they told Rod, said, go with him 20 minutes if you can. And if he's horrible, go with him two minutes. So that was the – you know, Rod was a great worker. He, and uh, he, we went 20 minutes. And Kendo Nagasaki saw that match, but he didn't see me wrestle. So if he'd have seen me wrestle, he'd have known how green I was. And he came to me after the match, and he said, what's your background? I said, well, I played some pro football. I was trained by Brad Rangans. Uh, just wrestled tonight. He goes, you want to come to, to Japan? Guys spent their whole lives – never made it to Japan. I got booked there on my second night in the business. It was unbelievable. Three weeks later or so, I'm in Japan working and I'm tag teaming with Bob Orton, uh, Randy Orton's dad. Wow. Bob asked me one time, wow. he goes, you know, kid, uh, you do some stuff that, that's really good, but some of the stuff you do makes no sense. How long have you been in the business? And I said, uh, two weeks, sir. And he goes, no, 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 not how long have you been in Japan? How long have you been in the yeah. business? I said, two weeks, sir. And he goes, the hell are you doing here? Because <laughs> back weeks. then, they would, my God, they would eat you alive. And they loved eating me alive. They wouldn't try me at the beginning. They'd blow me up. And then at the end, they would just stretch me and beat me with chairs. And it was, it was Japanese, a long five Jap weeks. Ja Japanese style, brother, Japanese style. And that's when it was, whew, they didn't play around. The strong style was was 100%. Yep. It was the, the, the line between shoot and work was so gray there. My yep. father, I remember him, the first time I, he went was, uh, must have been 70, late 73, or early 74, and he convinced Dory Funk. Dory Funk had, was uh, booking for, for Baba over there at All Japan, and he actually goes, uh, there was a spot open, so he was begging Dory Funk can I please, Dory, can I please go? Dory, the Amarillo boys were running through my grandpa's territory over there in, in El Paso. So, of course, Guerreros and Funks have inter intertwined for years and years and years. In fact, Terry was a big mentor for my father. So, my dad's, he's begging Dory, and uh, Dory's like, kid, you're not ready. You're just not ready. I, I understand, you You know, you're, you're Gore Guerrero's son. You're just not ready. And finally, he got, he convinced them. He went, but dad did, did well, but it was such a highlight. My, my dad talked about that his entire life. I mean, all of the other tours, of course, but that first tour, getting that chance from Dory Funk was one of his highlights, man. Yeah, I wasn't ready, to, obviously, to go at that time. And thank God for Bob Orton. You know, I loved Bob Orton from the first time I met him. Just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And those that have not guy. seen Bob Orton work, man, that punch that Randy throws, he got it from his dad. Bob Orton was a he was a great worker. And by the way, people always ask about that mid-rope suplex. I asked Bob about it one time. He got it from Scott Irwin. Scott Irwin was the first to do that. It was Bill Irwin's, while Bill Irwin's right. brother, uh, you know, who passed away. Scott did yeah. at a young age. But Bob would get me in the morning, and he'd show me a bunch of sugar holes, show me a bunch of shoot holes, mm -hmm. let me survive that night. 
you know, by the time that the tour was over, I was doing okay. My cardio had caught up and I'd learned enough wrestling, but man, it was baptism by fire. fire. It, the first few uh, days and the first few weeks were, <laughs> were pretty, they were pretty rough over there in Japan. Oh yeah. Well, my, my first, my first match, I got introduced very, very fast. My, I, I was four months into WCW, probably six months into my wrestling career. And they said, hey, we're going to send you to Japan for the Super J Cup. All right, cool, no problem. So I called my dad up. Dad, I'm going to Japan. And he's like, he's like, okay, great. So I go, you know, what's your advice? You know, what do you, what do you think? What's, what's your advice for me? And he goes, this is the God's own truth. He goes, beat the fuck out of him. And I'm like, <laughs> I go, okay, okay. So like, like what? He goes, no, beat the fuck out of him. And I'm like, but like rest, like we're working right here we're working here and stuff right i, I kind of didn't i was kind of agreed but kind of didn't get it my very first match my very first tie-up with kenji kanemoto i tied up we went to the to the corner to the turnbuckle my hands went down and he slapped me so hard <laughs> broke my eardrum broke my eardrum the very this is the very first tie-up in japan slapped me broke my eardrum my ear starts bleeding and I'm like, oh, that's what my dad meant about it. And it was it like, was either unreal, you, you fight. Was, I've been in street fights. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in street fights that are easier than some of those matches. I'm telling you, man, they were. It was tough and it was stiff. Bob Orton tagged me in one time. He goes, "We're going over, kid, but we ain't giving them shit. Don't give them nothing." <laughs> it just yeah. sucked, Bob. I'm not sure I got the cardio not to give them nothing. <laughs> No, absolutely. But that's how it was, man. You really – you had to watch them. You know, and it wasn't like they were bad guys or we were bad guys, but, you know, guys just really didn't trust each other. And you're always trying to take a little bit of advantage and trying to figure out where your spot was on the card. And, and it was really – it was an alpha male business back then. Huge alpha male. And, and I've said that – I've stressed that before anybody listened. There was no MMA back then – the toughest guys in the world were the pro wrestlers, bar none. You didn't get into the wrestling business unless you could prove that you were tough as nails. And then they'd be like, oh, all right, maybe we'll train them. You had to prove your worth. Then they'd train you to be a wrestler. And then all of a sudden, you know, they didn't even smarten you up for the first six months. So you guys are, you're fighting, you're actually fighting in there. They, they respected this business so much that you could not even – break foot into the business unless you were a tough, tough, tough guy. It was awesome. Yeah. One time we were in the ring, me and Bobby Duncan Jr. were in the ring with Gary Hart, one of his nephews, and Gary had trained him, and we thought this is going to be okay. Gary's a great worker. Gary hadn't smartened him up. And so I get in the ring with this kid. He's not smart to the business. He thinks it's a shoot, and we're going at it. So finally I got him tied down. I tag in Bobby. I said, Bobby, get ready. I said, you don't know what to expect. <laughs> Guys did that all the time back then. Killer book. Killer Kim Brooks told me he was in the business for months before they even smartened him up. Yeah, yeah. So anybody listening, smartening up is uh, is is telling you know telling you that wrestling is entertainment. I I, I don't use the fake word because that's absolutely not what it is at all. But it's the smart up like it's entertainment. We're there to put on a show. We do it physical, like by physical entertainment. We do very, very physical, but we're there to put on a show. But when you don't smarten somebody up, they still think that it's that, especially back then, that that you're in there for a fight. 
you know. And think and about just, this. These guys were actually – there were guys that weren't smartened up that were treating it like a shoot, going against guys that were actually working, you know, and yeah. carrying them a certain length of time. Arnie Scollin, you know, the golden boy. Arnold, used to yeah. always tell the story. He had been around the loop for months, maybe six months, and finally he won a match, and he thought, oh, my God. He goes, I finally won a match. And he said, it looks like – he said, I probably expect a fight in the dressing room. So he walked back to the dressing room, and everybody was just laughing. And that's how they smartened him up. The guy let him beat him. Let him beat him. I mean, Arnie still beat the guy, and it still was, yeah. he still wasn't smartened up. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. So you're in world-class wrestling in Dallas. You're, were you in Sportatorium? Sportatorium, yeah. It was uh, global wrestling at that time, right past the global. Von Erich. Uh, right, after, right after world-class. Right after World Class, it was Global Wrestling. They had a deal with ESPN. They had a deal with some local TV stations. So ESPN was actually pretty good exposure. They didn't we – had, we had a sellout every single Friday night, but no one bought mm -hmm. a ticket. They gave tickets away, but they made them pay for parking and beer and hot dogs and stuff, and that's how they got people packed in that arena. I mean, it held like, I don't know, like sure. 2,000, 2,500 people, but it was full almost every Saturday. And then at that time, Kerry had just come back from the WWE for a while. Kevin was there. Yeah. The Freebirds came back during that time. It was a pretty cool mm. time. Business wasn't like it was back in the late 80s because this was the early 90s. It already taken that down. But it's pretty cool to have those guys back and have huge crowds that were still on fire. Oh, I mean, this is the, the, the rock star um, persona, the rock star aura of Kerry and Kevin. Amazing, right? I tell you, when people ask me who's the biggest star I've been around, of course, I think probably The Rock, you know, he carries himself like a, like a star. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a very good way. Uh, right. And he always has. Kerry Von Erich was like that. I mean, it's like being around Bruce Springsteen. I don't know a, a name bigger enough to, to say how big Kerry was in Texas at that time. He carried himself like a rock star. And that's how he was treated. He had this humble uh, attitude where he'd say, how you doing? I'm Kerry Von Erich. And people would just swoon over themselves. I mean, it was yeah. amazing. Kevin was the same way. I, I loved Kevin. Kevin, you know, yeah. still doing well out in uh, mm -hmm. California. I'm sorry, out in Hawaii right now. Wow. My first big match was with Kevin for the NWA championship. And uh, it was – I felt really bad because I was such in awe of Kevin and being in the ring with him it wasn't a very good match. And I've always felt bad about that because it was hundred percent my fault. It wasn't Kevin's. Kevin was great. We later had some matches. I thought that were very good, but I always felt bad about that. That first big match when uh, he actually dropped the title to me, which was very thankful. And also that added to me, and here's this guy who's a champion who I grew up watching and I idolized him and still did. I wanted to ask him for an autograph and a picture, make sure somebody got this on tape and we, the match was just not very good. And I always felt bad about that, but it was because I was, had so much respect for Kevin. I just, I, I went and visited them. I was in Kauai uh, for a vacation and they're like, Chavo, come, come, please come. You know, they're so gracious. Come He's to a our, good dude. Know, Kevin's a good yeah. guy. He means every great. word of that, by the way. Kevin means, Kevin would welcome you, man. Kevin's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Yeah, and his kids are the same way. They're 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 so awesome. I did go over there, and they showed me. I mean, it was it was amazing. They had their own. They have like this eight acres in Kauai with their own waterfalls and their streams, and they have 
like, you know, it's like a compound. It looks like, you know, they have the Von Erich compound. They got like six houses and they, each one of them has a house. They have their own um, tilapia um, pond where they just go out and just fish and just, just grab a for dinner. And, and these, and they think that fishing is like so easy because they just put their hook in and they just grab dinner like two seconds because they're not, <laughs> they're not doing it for sport and they just eat it. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, they have the waterfalls and they were super gracious. It was, I, um, it was an experience I'll never, I'll never forget for sure. And, you know, Kevin came out and said hi to all of us and hung out. He was really cool to see. Great yeah, guy, Kevin's a good guy. He seems to be very at peace in life. You know, he, yeah. they, I think he was the sole benefactor of that uh, championship library that they had. Mm-hmm. And so when they end up selling that, they sold it to, to Vince or whoever they sold it to initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Kevin, unfortunately, and, and good for him, he was able to get that money from that. And, and I yeah. think so now he lives – uh, pretty comfortably from what I understand. And I hope so, because he certainly deserves it. Yeah, for sure. How did you end up getting the call to go to New York? Which I got a New call York, first. Everybody listening, New York is WWF, WWE. I got the call first to go to, uh, to go to work for Otto and Peter in, in Europe. So mm. the year before Larry Cameron had died in the ring in Brainman, Germany, actually in the ring against Tony St. Clair, he died during the break of uh, uh, in, in between rounds, uh, but it was during the match. Mm. You know, thank goodness Tony oh, didn't have a hold or something. They always thought that there were something was suspect about it. None of the Americans would go back, which added to the fact they thought something was suspect about that death. So they had to replace the entire American crew. And Jimmy Suzuki, remember the Japanese yeah, reporter? Yeah, Jimmy. He Absolutely. was in the office with Otto Vance. I'd send him tapes. I'd send him pictures. I'd send him resume. I'd send him all this stuff. And I'd send him a ton of stuff. Otto grew up with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in Graz. They were childhood mm. chums. Otto's a legend. Otto uh, held a Guinness World Record for ripping phone books in half. You know, this big barrel-chested guy. Typical Austrian. Loves to drink beer and laugh and tell stories. So he needs one person. He has one person left he needs for the roster. And literally, Jimmy Suzuki's sitting there, and he goes, oh, you have a picture of John Hawk. He goes, I know John. He's a good boy. And Otto goes, okay, I'll take him. And that was it. He didn't look at my pictures. He didn't look at my tapes. He took me because of Jimmy Suzuki. And that was probably my biggest break, you know, up until going to WWE. I saw I was over there for two years, worked in Grotzveen, worked in uh, Hanover, Bremen, a bunch of other towns, Zeeboden, several other towns in the areas. And then finally, late of the next year, I got a call, literally – they told me to go down to the payphone. Bruce Pritchard's calling me from the WWE, and he and Pat Patterson. I walk down there in the rain. I'm standing there with an umbrella. I'm the biggest dumbass in the world. And the phone rang. This payphone in Germany rang, and it was Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson. They said, hey, we want you to do a tryout match when you come back from Germany this year. So I went back, had a tryout match with Sabio Vega, who's a terrific worker, the right guy, right. and got right. hired by Gerald Briscoe on the spot. And that was December of 1995, and I never dreamed I would be there ever since. How the heck did, were we on the road with no cell phones, no GPSs? I, I, we were lost for 15 years. I don't understand like, how we did it. It's so much different. The guys on the road now that with cell phones calling home, I mean, there was nothing. I, the, when I first started, and you're, you're eight years before me, as far as 10 years before me, as far as your wrestling career, I had a pager when I first started. It was a pager. And 
you're getting a call at a payphone on the street in the rain by the WWF. Crazy, right? Raymond, right Germany. I don't know. What, I can't even remember. I'm sure Bruce could tell you the story about how they got the number of the payphone. I don't even remember. I don't know if they'd called somebody there and said, how do we get hold of him? I didn't have a phone in my caravan. I had a caravan that was 16 feet by six. So my first house was 64 square feet. The bathroom was in the, the building. We had park outside in the parking lot. We'd have to go in the building to shower and use the bathroom and wow. had no phones, had nothing. And literally I walked down and I get a, call it a payphone in the middle of a street in Germany. And that's, that was my call from the WWE. In, insane. It's the times have changed, brother. Times have changed tremendously. You, I mean, you're, you're going to Japan, you're getting trained by Brad, you're wrestling at, you know, global. Then you're going to living in a trailer in, in Germany. And then maybe, maybe you get looked at from the WWE from the WWF, maybe. And it's weird how now it's like, it's so changed to where now like sometimes these guys, this, this is their first, their first job ever is, okay, right. oh yeah, I'm gonna try wrestling. I'm gonna go to the Performance Center, which is, ama- I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's incredible. That's incredible and, and good for them. You know, t- times yeah. have changed, but it was so different. And I don't know how I would make it now. I don't know if I could make it now. You know, I don't, I don't think then, I could you work in all of these individual territories. And so it was kind of like recruiting for college. You know, you, when you recruit for college in any sport, you pick out the best of the high schools. You, know, you pick out guys who are champions. You pick out guys who are all state, all American, stuff right. like that. It's pretty easy. You know, they got a pedigree. Now you don't know if they can even pick up the sport. And so by the time you come to WWE, you've already been champion at all these smaller places. So they know at least you've had some success at some level. And if I had never had that, I don't know how it would have transferred to the WWE. I mean, that, that's that because I thought I was ready when I came to WWE. I really did. I thought, <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to go no. straight to the top. Good Lord, man. I was so overwhelmed. I remember sitting there at WrestleMania in Anaheim Pond and watching Sean repel from the ceiling and thinking, I need to go back to Japan <laughs> because I thought I don't belong here. He and yeah. uh, Brent had that Iron Man match that day. And I just remember looking at it thinking, God, grief, man. I've made a mistake. I don't belong here. Next day, I'm in the ring with Undertaker on live Raw. And I remember the, the all that's in my head from the day before. You know, the, the lights go up, and the lighters come up. And I'm sitting there. And Dutch Mantel, Zebekai is my manager. And he can see me panic inside. And he says, just be aggressive. Just be aggressive. And all that went through my head was that bad match that I'd had with Kevin Von Erich the first time I'd ever wrestled him. So I thought – if I err, I'm on air on the side of aggression. So I jump taker and I'm waffling him in the corner, I'm just laying the wood to him. And he looks up and he goes, Do I owe you something? <laughs> he just Calm has down. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm done. I'm fired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Taker's a tough, a tough so- sob when he when he has to be, but he doesn't want to be. He wants to <laughs> no, work and have no. a good match. <laughs> I could have just imagined his his take on it, and but that's true. You didn't make it to the WWF at the time until you were at you were 10, 15 years in minimum. You didn't even make it there. The best of the best made it there, and that's the way it was. And then it's just it's it's just a little bit changed now, but. You know, not, nothing bad, just times have changed. And I totally get it. I'm not one of those, those veterans that are saying that, you know, like, oh, oh, back in my day, back in this. It's just different, different times, different change. 
changing. These kids are so much more athletic than we were. They have, they can do so much different things. So, you know, hats off to them for sure. Yeah. And so you now, know, yeah. I think it's harder for them. You know, I, my generation was the first generation that was able to read scripts, you know, and actually be right. able to be told what to do in a promo, but not uh, kind of transcended a couple generations at the very beginning. Our guys couldn't do that. You know, our guys could ad lib anything. You say, okay, you got Kevin Von Erich in a lumberjack match at Will Rogers this Saturday night. Uh, give us two minutes, go. And that's all that you would get. So you ad libbed everything. And Sink or swim. But you could, but they say, hey, here's what we have to have you get over. Get it in this order because we need this for television. Guys in my generation couldn't do that. Guys in this generation have a hard time doing what our guys did. And it's like you say, it's not that one side is right or one side is wrong. It's just different. It's just a different way that we grew up in the business. Yeah, we were improv specialists. That's what we did. We just went out there and just did it. We, you know, whatever. They just they gave us very minimal, just a very minimal outline. Go out there and do it the way, do it your way. Which is which is great. That, I I miss that part of the art form, part of of wrestling. That the imp- improvisation. I love just getting out there and just. My favorite part now, not when I was younger. When I was younger, I was scared to death. But now is going in completely blank. Who's up? Who's down? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And then just do the rest of it out there. That's especially yeah. when you know somebody. That's the best. I've always felt that way, and, I, and I, you may be going to get to this in a second, but the, the first big match I had with Eddie in the Staples Center, Pat mm-hmm. Patterson sat down with us and gave us the, the finish of what was they wanted, and here's what he – you know, Pat was a great finish guy. And right. I could see Eddie just kind of looking at him, and you could see Eddie kind of glaze over, and, and Eddie didn't say anything. So when Pat left, I said, Eddie, something wrong? He said, yeah, I don't like it. He goes, I just don't feel that. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to call it out there. So I went to Pat and much respect to Pat. I said, Pat, I said, "Um, just not feeling it. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, Eddie wants to call it out there. We didn't even have a finish. We knew what the finish was going to be. We didn't even have a finish. The entire thing was called out there. But that's also how much respect that Pat had for Eddie as well. That's not a normal thing that would have happened with anybody else in a main event of a pay-per-view where you say, okay, go out there and do whatever you want. But that's the amount of respect that that Pat had for Eddie. But that's also that mindset of the older generation of I want to get out there and feel the crowd and see what they're buying and what they're not. Yeah, for sure. That's – as you get in the business and you get – older the business and you get time in the business you i remember put this way so i remember one time i was in the philippines and i was dressing chuck palumbo i was the heel he was a baby face and ricky steamboat one of the best baby faces best wrestlers of all time he was our agent so he suggested doing some stuff so i'm like all right okay i wasn't really feeling it but okay so i went out there and did it match was very was for me, at least lackluster. When I got done the next day, I looked at, at um, Ricky and I said, Ricky, do you mind? I go, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not you. You're you, Ricky Steamboat. There's one Ricky Steamboat and that's it. I'm not you. I can't do that. Can I just go out there and feel it and do it the way I would do it? He's like, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So I went out there and did it. He came back and, you know, Ricky was his dip in his mouth and tell him, 
You're right. You're right. So it was just at first I try, you, you try it, but then after a while, you, you know, time in the business, you kind of start learning like, okay. And I remember before, right. Your match with Eddie, after he and I had a, um, had a split, he had just gotten the, uh, the championship from Brock and uh, Pat suggested something that we did. And we had a match. I had won the cruiserweight championship that before he had won the, 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 the heavyweight championship. So, you know, me being the jealous nephew challenged him for the championship at the next night, whatever. Well, Pat was our agent and, and he um, suggested something and Eddie wasn't feeling it too much, but we did it and it, and it worked out fine. But I remember him going like, oh, man, I don't really feel that too much. Uh, let's just try it. So I don't know if that had any play in what you guys did, but I remember your match was one for the ages, you know, and all called on the fly. All called on the fly. Eddie would do some stuff on the fly that just boggled the mind. I mean, I remember him calling backdrops onto tables and the announce mm -hmm. table and different things that was just called on the fly. And I tell people this stuff was all 100% called on the fly. People have a hard time believing it because of the stuff that Eddie did. But he had a feel that was just uncanny. I never seen like Eddie. I, I'm not sure if you ask Eddie, can, okay, Eddie, put together a match in the back. I don't think Eddie could do it. <laughs> I don't think he could, I don't think Eddie could put a promo together back too. But you give him a microphone and you turn that light on, that guy comes alive, man. It was like a live wire. It was like grabbing something that's not grounded and just shocks through your body, man. It's, and it's it's infectious when you're out there with him because when mm -hmm. he's feeling it and he felt it almost every single night. I don't know if we ever had a night where he wasn't on. There's a couple that that I wasn't. Uh, it was it was an amazing time. I mean, just absolutely yeah. amazing the stuff that he would come up with. We followed one time. We followed The Undertaker. And I, I love Taker. He, you know, he, he's one of my best friends. He's a groomsman at my wedding. But yeah. when you put guys on before the main event, they generally tried to outdo the main event. You know, that was, that was the old mantra. Follow this. You know, follow you this know, MFers, yep. You want to follow the killer, you better get a pine box. <laughs> Taker was on before us, and, and me and Eddie are sitting there watching it, and it was awesome. I don't remember who he was working with. It was freaking awesome. And I'm sitting there going, Eddie, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? It was fantastic. And I know that he did it on purpose. He never he never would admit that. He never would say it. But, he, you know, that was just the professionalism of, all right, follow this. So I get out there with Eddie, and I had in my mind what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to the top rope. I wanted to go to the crowd. I wanted to keep everybody on their feet. I wanted to go blood and guts. I wanted to go all over the place. And Eddie said, grab a headlock, grab the headlock. And so I said, okay, Eddie, and I get called a spot. And he goes, nope, sit here. And I said, okay, Eddie, and I called a spot. He goes, sit here. And I thought, what is he doing? So I said, Eddie, we're going to lose him. He goes, sit here. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, of course, you can't keep them up here. You got to bring them down. And we sat there and people started almost murmuring among themselves. They almost got disinterested. And once they did, Eddie said, let's go. And we started going. And by the time we're done, the people are all on their feet. They're going freaking nuts. But it was all Eddie having a feel for the crowd, you know, that so many people forget. And I'd panicked because I wanted to follow Taker and I wanted to keep them here, but I realized you can't do that for 30 minutes. You got to take them on the roller coaster. And that's what Eddie did. Yes. Eddie said one time, and I remember Matt Hardy telling me that it was one of the most profound things to him. He said, sometimes you got to bring them down to bring them back up. 
That's right. You have to. You can't keep them. You can't keep them here. You know, and I, if there's any mistake I see that's made, uh, you know, among young guys of any era, of my era, of the era before me, of the era now, is you try to just spot, 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 spot. And you don't tell a story. You know, you, you got to be able to lead to that big spot. Tell a story. Be a little Shakespeare. And then when you get to that spot, everybody goes crazy. But if you follow, if you get to that big spot, after you follow three other big spots, people don't go as crazy. Yeah, and that's where I think people are mistaking what we do in the ring. And especially young wrestlers. We tell stories in the ring. And these spots help tell the story, but the spots themselves are not the story. The, uh, I relate it to, um, ex- to movies a lot. Explosions in a movie will help tell the story, but the explosions themselves are not the story. And you can't just have a movie which is explosion, explosion, explosion without being connected to your, to your characters and, in our case, to the wrestlers. The wrestlers have to connect to the fans and the fans have to care about you. If they don't care about you, it's just movement in the ring. Yeah, and that's what you see in a movie. I mean, every movie is almost the same. I mean, a few kind of differ from that template, but they, they establish the good guy right away. And they establish that the good guy is a badass in some respect or another. You also establish part of the bad guy. You don't have to establish that guy right away. You can do that throughout the movie, but you do that usually through some fast type scene. You establish that good guy. You establish who the guy is in the white hat. Then you take him on the roller coaster. Then you show, okay, here's the bad guy. Here's the guy that's got to be vanquished at the end. And then it takes a while to get there, but that's the roller coaster. Otherwise a movie would be 15 minutes. You know, if I was writing Walking Dead and I'd been got my way, the governor would have been killed the first 15 minutes of the first show. I'd I'd watch two seasons to see this guy get his head cut off or whatever happened to him. You know, that's that's the business. You know, you can't you you if you want to kill a territory, let the fans book it because they're going to do what they want. You can't give them what they want. You know, I don't want to see a movie and get what I want because I want to see uh, Joffrey, you know, King Joffrey get killed right away in Game of Thrones. Instead, uh, you know, you you, won't, right. you take him out for several seasons, but that keeps you interested. Absolutely. I, I agree. And today is, uh, as of this recording, today is October 9th, and it is Eddie's 53rd birthday. So... Definitely talking, you know, to you is definitely a highlight for me. So I'll give Eddie a big old cheers because. Uh, yeah, I, I don't uh, like whiskey, but I have an energy drink. I'll, I'll happily. I'm, toast. I'm, yeah, I miss that guy. Being Eddie's birthday today, let's talk about your program with Eddie. He just become the the champ, the W, was it, is it the WWE champion? And. His real first program was with you, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, they needed somebody to work with Eddie, and they. Right. I, I thought my career was really over. I tore a bicep, and when I was trying to re- recover from it, I had two different hernia operations. I mean, I went through some really tough time physically, and I thought my career is probably over at this point. And the WWE called me. I can't remember who it was. They, I don't think it was Vince. I think it was somebody else. And they said, we need, we want you to cut your hair, go back to the original hair color. Um, we need somebody to fight Eddie uh, at the next pay-per-view. And mm-hmm. I'd already come back with a different hair color before, you know, that, but. 
Right. Said, said, yeah, you're, you're, you're coming from the acolytes with yeah. dark hair and goatee and yeah. this, you and know. I yeah. took that time off and I came back with Ron and Ron and I split up and we had this kind of idea in mind. But it all boiled down to Eddie needed somebody. Big Show was out, I believe. Kurt Angle was out. Brock had left. I think he was going to going to UFC, I believe, or NFL, one of the two. Mm-hmm. And so they needed somebody in six weeks to get ready for Eddie at the Staples Center. And so that's when they created the JBL character. And so, yeah, it was Eddie's first big program. And for me, it was – this was it. This was, if, this, if this hadn't worked, it had been one and done. I always say if it hadn't been for Eddie, there would be no JBL. Uh, there wouldn't be a Hall of Fame unless I got in there as an wow. APA member or tag team partner of Ron Simmons, which probably was not likely. Uh, but it was all came down to Eddie and that first big run that we had and how much input he had into my character. So I remember one of the one thing that really stands out to me. So you, you, I remember the first time I see you on TV, you come out and now you're this JBL character with a big cowboy hat on and stuff. I'm like, Oh, where did that come from? Okay. Then you started, started getting off and running. And I was like, all right, well, well gosh, dang, this, you know, this guy can talk. I never really heard you talk before <laughs> being a, being an acolyte and uh, being the APA. So uh, I'm like, wow, this guy's, this guy's really good. So then you guys, you, one thing that really worked that I really liked was that you were not afraid to get heat and keep that heat. So many people now are just like, they want to be the cool heels or they want to be cool out there. You didn't care about that. You wanted everybody in that entire, that entire building to boo you. That's, that's the heel that I grew up. I mean, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the bad guy. You know, you look at any major TV show, there's always one super bad guy. You know, there's always a bunch of, you know, guys that are kind of wisecracking that are kind of middle card and stuff, but there's always this one super bad guy with absolutely no redeeming qualities. And very few guys are willing to be that guy. And that's the guy that I wanted to be. And that's the guy that Eddie needed to, to work against in that pay-per-view. And so we had to get there and somehow find a way to compress time. And heat never bothered me. I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, I was a heel 24-7. People say, oh, you're an asshole. No, well, okay, Undertaker was Undertaker 24-7. You say that was professional and guy does, be as, does the same thing as a heel. And people say, oh, you're an asshole. Uh, but – that's what helped protect the character. I never allowed them to sell JBL shirts. I never allowed them to sell JBL merchandise because I didn't want some kid buying a JBL shirt and being wearing that shirt in the front row and people looking around going, well, this kid likes him. Maybe there's something redeeming about him. You know, but after a while I got where people would wear the hat and the towel and wear the suit to the arena. First thing I'd do is I would just slam fast these guys all on the microphone and I would get them booing me and once they did then everybody else was already booing me anyway you know it was just a matter that you couldn't do anything socially redeeming and the when we first started with Eddie Eddie fortunately you know he had such professionalism you know the idea is you can make a broomstick into a, an opponent Eddie I think wanted to see me succeed as much for me and him because we were good friends but also because of his own legacy of he wanted to know that show that he could create anybody and he helped create the JBL character. There is no Luke Skywalker without Darth Vader. (laughs) That's exactly right. right. I I was the perfect foil for Eddie. 
you know, I was this, played this ultra right wing conservative rich guy who hated immigrants, who hated anybody who didn't look like him. I grew up with those guys. You know, Eddie mm -hmm. grew up in El Paso. I grew up in West Texas as well. I knew who those guys were. I hated them. And that's what I patterned myself after. So Eddie and I understood very well what worked in that particular mm -hmm. scene and what worked, what worked in that particular role. And Eddie would call me all the time. He, he's the one that gave me the line. He said, hey, Essay, tell them my ancestors come over here in a boat, not an inner tube. <laughs> I just laughed. I said, hey, great. He Brilliant. fed me more lines. Brilliant. And he would call me at all times of the of day and night. And he would say, Essay, I got something for you. And he would tell me some line. You know, it was him and uh, your dad that came up yeah, with the idea classic. for the heart attack angle in El Paso. That's where I was going, man. You read my mind because that was so much heat. So we're in, anybody watch and listening, go back and go back and watch that angle. You have in El Paso, home of the Guerreros. And this wasn't even on TV. This was a house show, non-televised show that we recorded to show this later. And we had my grandmother who lived there, my actual grandmother, Eddie's mother, uh, was the matriarch of the Guerrero family. And... You tell it, man. You, so it's all it's you. It's also Mother's Day weekend. So let me tell you the funny part first. The, the whole thing is pretty interesting. But your your dad, Chavo, and Eddie came to me in a dressing room. I, I don't know where we were. It was right before this, maybe two weeks before. They said, we have a, an idea for the JBL character. Well, tell us what you think. We want to give mom, the, talking about your grandmother, a heart attack mm -hmm. in El Paso on Mother's Day weekend during a ceremony where they're honoring Gory Guerrero, <laughs> her, 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 her husband. And I said, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. Well, then it gets worse because your dad knows that he's got Eddie on the hook. And he says, Eddie, I've got an idea. Now, it's just us three in the back dressing room. They're going over this and <laughs> angles and sidelines and chasing rabbits. He goes, how about somewhere in there where Big John gives her the clothesline? And Eddie looked at him and goes, Chavo, that's not funny. He's not clotheslining our 70-something-year-old mother. And he goes, no, no, John can work. but He'll make it look good. Now, Eddie starts getting mad. And so Eddie goes, Chavo, shut up. This is not going to happen. He's not touching our mother. He goes, okay, okay, Eddie, okay. He goes, how about he just gives her the big boot? <laughs> and then Eddie, Eddie <laughs> up to fight your dad. And they're, like, sitting there yelling at each other. And I'm sitting there going, what the – the hell do I do? <laughs> God, guys, two brothers who've probably been in a million freaking fights, one needle in the other, and he's got Eddie hook, line, and sinker. It was awesome. So and we finally I, got – I don't think my dad was was kidding all much. He was kidding, but he wasn't all that kidding. If he would have went for it, grandma would have went for it, he'd say, okay, we could do it. You, you could do this, bro? And you would be like, yeah, I could do it. Oh, man. It was so good. So we get to El Paso. They have the state troopers there. They have people everywhere. They think the place could riot. I mean, they, they're really concerned about that. So I work with Eddie. Match is over. Hold on one second. Someone's, someone's knocking my door. Hold on, hold on real quick. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll end with that. Oh, great. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm in quarantine, sorry. And they keep giving me some gifts. Super. I like it. Amount of tequila, and I don't know who this is from, but I'm going to read it in a minute. So um, I'll, I'll edit all that out. So let me see. Go back to where you're at. Yeah, so 
I had wrestled Eddie earlier in the night, and then he has right after the match. I believe right after the match. I believe is how the, the timeline went. Bruce Pritchard was down there to film it. We're filming it uh, secretly, so nobody knows. So it looks like it's more legitimate and like That's it was right. news footage. And uh, Eddie then comes out, brings his mother out, uh, your grandmother, and the whole place is chanting "Gory, Gory," you know, for the legendary Gory Guerrero. Uh, you know, your, your mom, grandmother has gotten a little bit emotional. You know, that's her, you know, that's her ex, that's her husband, ex-husband. That's her, that's her right. husband. You know, and she's the widow. And I come back out with a chair and I hit Eddie over the head with a chair and I, I cut him open with the chair a little bit, caught him with the edge, which added to the effect. Mm-hmm. Eddie had bloodied me earlier with the punch. So I had some blood coming down the, the front here. So I'm bleeding, Eddie's bleeding. And I turn around to Eddie's mother and I point at her like that. And when I do, she grabs my wrist. That way she can guide herself down. You know, she's 70-something years old. So she can guide right. herself down. But it looks like I'm choking her down. So she goes down. Vicky is screaming and crying at ringside. Eddie's daughters are crying and screaming. It's the dangest sight you've ever seen in your life. That place got so quiet, you could hear a whisper from the top row. I've never felt anything like that in my life. It was white heat as white, white heat. heat. Oh, my God, as you could possibly wow. get. Eddie looks up from the mat, and he goes, "Essay, you better get out of here. They're going to kill you. It was dead serious. The police around the ringside, they're going, John, you got to get out of here. There's going to be an absolute riot. I never felt anything like that in my life. But I know we got to get it all on camera. So I'm still – and Eddie's mother, I know that she's okay. She looked like she had a heart attack, and I'm two feet from her. I mean, imagine what – and I'm in on it. Imagine what people were thinking at ringside. They, they think that something really yeah. serious has happened. And as I'm backing out of the arena, they've got my car not only packed but running outside with the police escort to get me out of town. I come in the back and people are, are everywhere and I'm yelling at them. I know I'm on camera. I'm yelling at them. I'm thinking, this is going to end really badly. <laughs> They're going to kill me. That place was just rumbling with hate. Rumbling. It was yeah. insane to be there. I get in the car. I drive off. They, they get me on the interstate. I, I pull over and I said, guys, nobody followed us. I'm fine. They said, listen, go all the way to Odessa. Do not come back to town. We can't guarantee your safety. And I said, okay, fine. So they turned around and went back. The funny part was I get stopped by a border patrol checkpoint about two miles later. So I'm in wrestling trunks, wrestling boots, no shirt. All my clothes are in the back, and I've got blood all down me from where Eddie had busted me open with a punch. And this this cop pulls up to me. That's what he looks at. I mean, (laughs) he said, is there an explanation? And I looked at him, and he's like a Latino officer, and I thought, he's probably a Guerrero fan. I don't think – I said, I've got an explanation. Not sure if it's going to make sense to you. And he goes, just put your shirt on and keep going. And so I went out and got my shirt and kept going. And after that, everywhere we went, we had jumpers and rings. So we were in southwest uh, uh, United States after that time, huge, you know, Hispanic population. Everywhere we went, I had to have extra security. There were people that were jumping, trying to get into the ring. It was crazy. It was absolutely insane. We were worried that we couldn't sell tickets for the Staples Center. We not only sold tickets, when I'm told it was, we set the attendance record that Roy Jones Jr. broke several years later. I mean, everybody was there to see me get killed. And I owe every bit of that to your dad and to Eddie. 
Um, dude, I remember your heat was so intense. And we didn't do it at the Don Haskins Center at UTEP. We did it at the old Coliseum that was the home of the Guerreros and the Guerrero promotion for years. So, so historic to have it done there. Just that there's some special times in those business. And that was one of them, you know. That was one of those times it's just... You couldn't recreate it if we tried. It just was perfect. It, might have, it just happened to work out just by luck. We were in San Bernardino. We were a lot of towns in southwest uh, the United right. States. And it was, you know, 95% Hispanic that would be there. And the heat that we would get, that I would get, was just absolutely insane. One amazing, time we had a jumper. Yeah. We had a jumper. And Eddie gets mad because this guy tries to jump in the ring. He's coming after me. Eddie goes after him because it ruined his – Eddie thinks he's ruined his match. So I literally tackle Eddie, and I'm holding him down. I'm going, Eddie, I'm the bad guy. I'm the one that needs to beat up this fan, not you. If you do it, they're not going to understand why you did it. So he's going, this guy ruined our match. But Eddie, please. And at that point, little Hebner punted this guy like Ray got right in the face, punted this guy, knocked him down. Security <laughs> guy. Dragged yes. him back. So I come out, get on the microphone, and I said, listen – security's gone now anybody else want to jump in this ring i promise you i'll whoop this whole stadium if it takes me five minutes so come on over and little Hebner looks at me and he goes you're the dumbest son of a bitch i've ever seen he goes they're gonna kill us and i said listen you watch my back i'll watch yours we'll be fine and he goes what's wrong with you i love it awesome. that's that's amazing amazing it's something that we skipped over and definitely kind of out of order a little bit, but we can't have a JBL story or a JBL podcast without talking about big Ron Simmons. Yeah. My best friend, uh, Ron was the best man at my wedding. You know, I, I think the world of Ron and my biggest break in my life, you know, we say without Eddie, there wouldn't be a JBL, but without Ron, there wouldn't be me. I mean, just period. I mean, that's how much I think about Ron. Ron and I were best friends in the WWE. We rode together long before we were tag team partners. It wasn't like we, we became tag really? team partners and became friends. That's why they put us together. You know, Ron was there, and they really didn't have anything for him, which was kind of crazy, and they didn't have anything for me, which was probably kind of normal. And they put us together in this tag team, and it just jailed. From the first time we were together, I mean, it just worked. And we had more fun than any two human beings should ever be allowed to have. It was me and Ron and Teddy Long and a lot of times Charles Wright, the godfather, riding in, in a four-door car, riding all over the United States together, and sometimes the entire world. We had an absolute ball. I think the world of Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons is – so anybody – everybody knows Ron Simmons as, as the pro wrestler, but he was one of the greatest college football players of all time. And Barry Bowden, Bobby Bowden, uh, the coach for FSU, Florida State – said that he was the best college football player that he ever coached. And, and, and he coached about, Deion Sanders. Yeah. I mean, that was it. Ron, yes. he, Ron was, he said Ron was the one that brought Florida State into promise. Ron was a three-time All-American. He was a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy as a nose tackle. When they played Oklahoma, Barry, they asked Barry Switzer, said, what do you got to do to beat him? He goes, we got to figure out how to block Ron Simmons. He said, that's the key to Florida State. You know, and nobody did. I mean, Ron was Ron was a man. <laughs> he had he was a, he was a man among men. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because there were some tough, tough guys back then. You know, he talks about going against Dave Remington, who was that great center with those massive arms from the University mm -hmm. of Nebraska. 
Ron had a Trans Am with his picture painted on it in college. <laughs> Briscoe Senior. <laughs> Talk about the big man on campus. <laughs> oh, my God. They, Sports <laughs> Illustrated called him one time, and they said, we want to ask you, how does a kid with no parents grows up in foster homes go to Florida State and have a Trans Am brand new with his picture on it? And Ron says, I guess I'm just doing my money. That's <laughs> the last guy I'll ever roll over on anybody. He's the most explosive man person I've ever seen. He just, you know, he's not a guy that you could sit there and go to the gym and he's going to be benching 600 pounds, but he'll just, he picks up, you know, like a 100 pound dumbbell, like it's nothing. And I've never seen somebody manhandle. Big Van Vader, like the way oh, he my would. He was so explosive and so strong. Yeah, that was uh, in a match that Nick Patrick was a referee, and I've heard Nick Patrick tell the story. Vader hits uh, Butch Reed in the corner and almost knocks him out. And Ron, of course, right. Ron tagged me. And he came in and he took down Vader, and Vader right away said, brother, it's a work, it's a work, it's a work. I mean, Ron, when he was a, a rookie at the Cleveland Browns, he bench pressed 225 48 times. At the time, the NFL record had been La La Zeta at 47. Years later, when I was my year, when I came out and people were in the combine, Mandrich did it 43 and everybody fell all over themselves. Ron had done it 48 eight years earlier. I mean, he was world class strength wow. and it was just all God given. And his, I never saw his heart rate get over 80. No, I never got excited. Nothing, never nothing got excited. I was just about. sitting there. You know, one time they were uh, they were sitting there and Steiners, I know the story and you know that story, where the Steiners, Steiner brothers were notorious bullies and were constantly messing with people in, in the uh, in the locker room and taping them up. And, you know, they would put, I mean, they would do crazy stuff, you know, do stuff, you know, like stuff with Sharpies and stuff. Yeah. They'd take guys naked in the ring post in the early afternoon, leaving there all day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was just fun for them. Yeah. And somebody asked Ron, so Ron, how come, you know, the, the Steiners fuck with everybody? How come they don't fuck with you? And Ron goes, because I'm unfuckable. <laughs> <laughs> Ron walked into the WWE and he had that horrible blue helmet, that Spartacus top gimmick. Stone Cold Steve Austin said, that's the only guy who can walk around here with that stupid blue helmet and nobody say anything about. <laughs> no one will say, don't say a word to him, right? And I actually saw this one. So Eric Bischoff, you know, was the head of WCW, was, you know, the big rival for WWF for years and years. And then, of course, WWF overtook them. When Eric came and worked for WWF, and he was in the dressing room working, I mean, dressing with us in the, in the dressing room. And Ron's sitting there and Ron's sitting, it, combing his hair with his, uh, his, little, his little brush, little pick brush, kind of combing his hair a little bit, making it nice. And someone looks over at, at Eric and goes, who's that? And Ron looks over and goes, nobody. It's <laughs> always so said, nobody. Didn't say a word, just, just nobody. And I was like, this guy is, he's just, he was on a diff, a completely different level than anybody. What, did, what was the story? You guys were in a, like a Indian reservation and having oh, beers. Oh, a great and, story. Right. It was, uh, we were up in, in Canada at, at, a, at a bar and it was a, a native type reservation place. And so yeah. I get into a, I'm sitting over in the corner, Ron is there and you can tell these guys really didn't want us being there. 
you know, they didn't want us in their place. So Ron is across the room and I'm sitting there and I hear that they're, they're talking about jumping somebody. And I thought, the only person that's that going to jump is me. And I'm sitting there, I look on the Ron and I thought, <laughs> oh, boy, this isn't going to end well. And so finally, when it starts to go down, I, I catch the guy with a pretty good punch. But when I do, knives come out and they've got me backed up against the corner. And so I can see Ron across the bar and he comes running, running to me with knives all pointed at me. There was probably four or five guys who had knives. Ron hops in front of me, grabs a beer bottle, and he looks at this guy and he goes, I'm going to hit the first white motherfucker that moves. And I thought, I'm the only white guy in this place. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'd been drinking. I thought, why is he going to hit me? And I'm sitting there trying to figure this out. I thought, Ron's got a beer bottle. This is kind of cool. And I said, I've got no chance of making it out of here. But if Ron turns on me too, I've really got no chance of making it out of here. That's what I'm thinking. And I'm sitting there looking at Ron. And Ron realizes what he said. He looks around. And he goes, not, not you. <laughs> These guys look at us like, these are the two craziest people we've ever seen in our life. So finally the guy said, all right, you can get out of here, but get out of here now. So me and Ron back, back down the hall like that and, and got out of there while these guys had their knives out playing tough. And your driver, I heard, was nowhere to be found. Cactus driver was, was gone. nowhere to be found. I told the, the main bouncer, I said, listen, you've got to get us a cab here, and you've got to get us a cab here in minutes. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And I said, because if you don't, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed, and most of it's going to be ours. And I said, but we're not going down lightly. And that guy had us a cab there with, within two or three minutes. We got in that cab, and those guys are all still standing there just wanting to stick a knife in somebody. We, oh we got God. out of touch. So many, so many stories. We've gone around forever on these, and I love them. Now, you left – not left, but you went from being the sports guy and getting beat up and beating people up. And then all of a sudden decided, Hmm, maybe I should use my brain and invest some of this money. How did you go out being and get into that, get in the stock market? How did you go about that route? I got in the stock market in say around 97 during the Asian crisis. I think I bought applied materials and Oracle, which the first two stocks I bought. I got real lucky because they were at a down because then they shouldn't have been. And I did really well with those stocks. And I started just reading when I got done playing football, I didn't have any money. And I'd love to tell you it was drugs and, and hookers and it was none of the above. It just, I didn't have any money. You know, you didn't make much money back then. And I swore to myself, right. if I ever made money, I was going to know what to do with it. So I just started reading every book I could get on finance. Uh, I ended up writing a finance book because I thought I can actually write a better book than what I'm reading. And then around 2003, 2004, wind power started taking off in the in uh, West Texas, where I grew up in, in Nolan County, Sweetwater, Texas. It's the wind capital of the world. So I talked to some buddies. I said, let's get some land. Let's get some turbines and build a wind farm. So I talked to an investment bank there in New York City, a little small boutique bank, Northeast Securities, about building this wind farm. Well, right when we got ready to pull the trigger, we had the land, we had the turbines, we had the loans we had everything we needed the renewable energy credit market exploded absolutely exploded and just disintegrated that was our profit margin so we had to pull the plug the investment bank looked at me and said hey we love what you did putting the land together and the turbines and the financing would you come work for us so i had to go past my series 7 series 63 and all the different stuff to become an investment banker so i went to work on wall street for about three years up until the financial crisis and that's where the whole stock stuff uh, came from. We did 
micro deals, uh, deals up to say 40 million, you know, whatever it was below Goldman Sachs at the time, you know, you couldn't, Goldman mm -hmm. Sachs was the gold standard at the time, especially. So we did deals that were just underneath what was worth it for them and did a bunch of deals in renewable energy and nutrition, all kinds of different deals. Wow. That's, uh, it, that's, I love that. It's amazing. Your, what's the book name of your book? Have more money now. I wrote it, I think, in 2004, but it's a, like an evergreen book. Mm -hmm. I wrote it more as a narrative right. than I wrote it just as a financial manual. I wanted people to be able to read the book and enjoy it, not just say, okay, I'm mm -hmm. trying to learn about PE ratios and crap. Like that. Right. You, you learn about that stuff, but I've got all kinds of stories in it as well that hopefully when you read it, you can sit it down and just enjoy the book. It, it, hopefully it flows from one end to the other. Awesome. That's one thing that definitely look up to you and a lot of the wrestlers do that you did something with you, with your life. <laughs> you, you made something of yourself, kid. And you actually, you know, you have your own show. What, 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 what uh, well, I worked show? for Fox Business for years doing, uh, you know, financial analysis and stuff. Bulls and Bears mm -hmm. was our show that we did for so long that we did on Saturday mornings. It was the number one show on Fox News for the entire weekend. But when uh, Lachlan Murdoch took over, from what I understand, I, I hope I'm, you know, repeating rumors that from the, you know, not from firsthand stuff. He wanted everything live. And we taped our show on Friday night after the market had closed. So they went live on Saturday morning. So that killed our show uh, about a year or two ago. They moved to the Fox Business Channel, but it wasn't quite the same. So now I just kind of mm -hmm. do whatever show kind of wants me on to talk about finance or stocks or market moves and things like that. I, every time I, I turn the TV and flip through the channels and I would see you on there, I'm like, all right, that's cool. You got your stuff and I listen to you and I'm like, all right. I'm waiting I for you to spill some you know, do, bullshit out there, but you know your stuff. I do all my own investing. I do all my own research. Right. I really enjoy it. You know, I'm very, I'm very conservative. You know, I don't, I'm not into day trading. I'm not into month trading. I, I invest long term in companies that I feel comfortable with are going to grow. You know, when you buy a stock, you're buying part of a company. You want to have that company succeed. You don't just buy a stock because it's 20 bucks and you think it's going to 25. You hope it's going to 25, right. but you got to have a rationale for it to get from 20 to 25. And that has to be a company that's behind it that is growing at, at that rate. We end Suplex and Cervezas with uh, a quick rapid fire questions to where uh, there's no right or wrong answer. You just, just for your fans to kind of know a little bit more about you. Are you, are you, you down for that? Absolutely. Whatever you want. All right, man. So uh, are you a vintage car guy or a new car guy? Vintage. Nice. Are you a beer or wine? Oh, beer. No doubt. Well, I knew that one. I didn't have to. That's just for our fans. Coors Brewing Company or Anheuser-Busch? Coors. 100% Coors Light. We're Coors Light, Coors Light fans from till death. Cowboy Champagne. Uh, that's it. That's it right there. Uh, blonde or brunette? Blonde. Blondie. I better say blonde. That's my wife. <laughs> yeah, you still, I, I was, I'm happy you're still an overachiever there. <laughs> uh, butter boobs. Eddie was a groomsman at my wedding. Uh, I know he was. I know he was. I know he was. Had a good time with uh, Are you a butt, butt or boobs guy? Oh, that's close. That's that's a toss up. Uh, but but. Okay. Are you an In and Out burger or a Water Burger? Water Burger. Oh, give me a break. Come Texas. on. Texas, Texas boy. If you're from West Coast, you're In and Out. If you're anywhere around Texas area, Louisiana, you're Water Burger. 
Rustling questions. Are you a Waffle House guy or a Cracker Barrel guy? Neither one. I never really got into either one. So I was neither. Really? Yeah, we never, in Texas, we didn't have Cracker Barrels and we didn't have Waffle Houses. That was more of a Southern, like a Georgia and Florida and yeah. places like that. So never really. But just being on the Waffle road, House. you just, you must have not have been able to eat because. Bob Evans. Bob Evans was the place we, we yeah. went a lot of times. All right, Bob Evans, I'll give you that, I'll give you that. You're a, you're a sports guy. Are you an MMA or boxing guy? MMA. Grew up, grew up boxing, loved uh, heavyweight division. Uh, you know, grew up uh, right. in the era of uh, Ali and, and Holmes and, and Foreman and those incredible, incredible guys, Frazier. And right. now, now you know, there's not really great heavyweights now, and so I don't really right, enjoy right. boxing too much. I'm an MMA guy. Were you an Ali or Tyson? Ali. Come on, man. Love Ali. I still remember like it was yesterday when he won the title back from Spinks. Amazing, 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 amazing boxer, the man. Thomas I, don't like Mike Tyson. I, I loved Mike Tyson, but that's, you know, that's, that's comparing. Of course, oh, of course, Super of course. Great, just, yeah, great. of course. I mean, yeah, he'll tell you. Thomas Hitman Hearns or Marvelous Marvin Hagler? Hagler, Hagler, loved Hagler. Hit, now, Hitman yeah. Hearns uh, invited me and Ron to a fight he produced. Uh, was that Glotta fight with, with uh, Mike Tyson when Glotta walked out. So Hitman is a, is a friend. I consider him a friend at least uh, of ours. So I love love uh, Hitman Hearns. That fight he had, best three rounds in boxing boxing history. That the first best, round, the greatest round of the boxing best. history he had with her with Agler. The best. Uh, MMA: Chuck Liddell or Randy Couture? Oh, close. I'll take uh, Couture due to longevity. Just do the longevity. I think Couture was such a yeah. tough guy for so long. I love Liddell too. Um, wrestling, wrestling s question. When we uh, are with are at three hundred miles, we can sometimes either fly or drive. What did you like? Uh, drive, drive, because we would get beer. We get beer and, and just cruise. Exactly. And drive is me, me, Ron Simmons, Godfather, and Teddy Long. Who doesn't want to ride with that crew? That was, we had some awesome times on the road. And that's where you learn, man. That's where you learn was on the road by picking veterans brains. And I don't know if it's done too much anymore, but you jumped in the car with somebody you were, you were lucky enough to get in, in, in the car with an undertaker or a, uh, an Arn Anderson or a, a fit Finley. And that's, that was like the learning tree right there, you know? And last one, are you a, a Stallone or Arnold guy? Arnold, 100%, man. Loved Arnold. To the chopper. Greatest bodybuilder of all time. Biggest movie star when I was uh, in college. Uh, real estate made millions of dollars. I mean, there was nothing like Arnold. Nothing like and Arnold. Such, he's such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy, right? Oh. You talk to him, and he's got that big thousand-watt smile. And, hey, he you're looking good, man. Backstage one time at the uh, worst, I think we're in LA, and he was so staples he was probably top of the world at the time. And he was asking guys humbly and politely, could his kids take pictures with him? You know, and they're we're going like, This is Arnold Schwarzenegger, man, you can do whatever you want. And I went up to him and just talked to him. And remember, Otto Vance, who I worked for in Europe, he and Arnold were childhood buddies. So I told Arnold in German, I grew, I, I lived in your hometown of Graz working for Otto. And Arnold just lit up like a Christmas tree. And I got to talk to him there for, you know, 30 minutes, whatever. It was just, it was the time of my life because I idolized him growing up. Yeah, great guy. 
A great, great guy. Well, I don't want to take up most of your day. I appreciate you coming out for your golf game and uh, sitting down and jumping on this podcast and shooting the shooting the shit with me, man. And I tell you, that's the best part of this podcast is catching it with my with my boys. Well, I love and, you, uh, Chavo. I always have you and Eddie both. We've always gotten along great, and it's such a. When you said you want to come on podcast, hell yeah! You just want to come on Zoom and talk and not even tape it. I'd be happy to do that. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I can't wait to one of these days get together again and uh, throw down a few course lights and tell some old stories, man. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, your dad told me one time, one of the greatest compliments that I've ever gotten in my life. And, uh, you know, he was being kind to me at the time. We were at uh, Eddie's funeral and I was, I think, backstage with the family and because uh, I gave part of the eulogy. And uh, right. he said, today you're, today you're a Guerrero. And I thought that was one of the coolest things ever said to me. That was such a nice thing to say at that time and so respectful. I, I, I've always cherished that. I always thought that was one of the nicest things I've ever had said to me. Well, I know that Eddie, you meant a lot to Eddie and he really appreciated your friendship and appreciated your run together and you guys were so close and uh, I think that's when we were just all just immersed in it and just right in the middle of wrestling. And you guys had that awesome program back and forth. And we just under, we just saw you take care of him. So you're, you're a Guerrero brother. You're, you're part of us. You're part of us. That's a compliment. It's true. It's a hundred percent true. I love you, man. And uh, I'm, I'm here. I'm a phone call away. Take me need me. Thank you, my brother. All right. Talk to you, brother. Get his pants on.